The Bible begins, fittingly, with the words, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It tells us at first there was only darkness, nothingness, formless, void. And that God then spoke and brought forth light and formed the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets. He formed all that is. He brought dry land up out of the water and covered it in green plants. He created everything that exists and his crowning achievement, of course, was on the last day after he had filled the sky and the seas and the dry land with animals of all different kinds. He made men and women in his image. And he looked at all that he had made and said, it is good. And then he, he set man and woman up in a really sweet situation. We read in Genesis 2.8, And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, this beautiful, poetic, epic of creation that we find in Genesis 1 through 3, describing the earliest chapters of mankind and our relationship with God, with each other, with ourselves, with creation, in it we read that human history began in a garden. It began in a garden that God himself had planted. He was the original gardener, as it were. And like a gardener, he cultivated it. We read, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And like a gardener, he would come in the evening and walk in this garden and enjoy it and fellowship with those whom he'd made in his image. And then, of course, he handed down... To the man that he created in his image, this job, this is before Eve came on the scene, this job, actually two jobs, to tend the garden and to guard it, to keep it. And the man and his wife were, we read, both naked and not ashamed. There was nothing between them. There was total openness. There was no shame, no conflict, no anxiety. It was what the scriptures call shalom, which isn't just peace, the absence of war, but everything as it should be, ness. And it was there, and it was good. But as we heard in the reading earlier from Genesis 3, mankind did not do a spectacular job of guarding the garden. The tempter came in. And convinced them that this God who had given them so very much was actually holding out on them. And that if they would just eat from that one tree that they were not even allowed to touch, they would become like God, knowing good and evil. They would become enlightened. And they both ate from it. And that evening when God came in the cool of the evening, instead of coming to him, running to him, they ran away from him. Into the bushes they ran and hid and shrunk back when he called them and called them even by name. Now they knew guilt and shame and separation where before they did not. And as a result of this sin, a curse, we read, comes upon the earth. The garden becomes a tomb. It's a place where now death has entered the world and pain and suffering and hatred and all the rest. Now we read in that curse formula that, that thorn and thistle will come up out of the earth as Adam works to tend it. That he will struggle and labor by the sweat of his brow and stress and all the rest will come into the picture. 
that there will be great pain in childbirth multiplied. There will now be power struggles and conflict. Even between man and wife, they will try kind of to dominate each other and have contrary desires. Where there was harmony, there will now be the opposite. And of course, there will be death. Mankind made from the dust of the earth will now return to dust. In fact, on Ash Wednesday, at the beginning of this Lenten journey, that is what we talked about. From dust you come, to dust you will return. Worst of all, though, sin had separated God from mankind. Or rather, had separated mankind from God. They were banished from the garden. And we read in Genesis 3, 24, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. But even in the midst of all this curse, there was a promise. Genesis 3.15 is the first glimmer of gospel in the Bible. We read, I will put enmity between you, he's talking to the snake, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall strike your head, and you shall strike his heel. The tempter will continue to work against those made in God's image, but there will come one the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. On Good Friday, we looked at how this was fulfilled when Jesus, the promised deliverer, struck at the enemy and in the process was himself killed. But of course, that is not the end of the story. That's why we have Easter. He is risen. risen All right, you're on your game. I like it. In John chapter 20, we read this beautiful Easter story. And in in verse 1, we get all the details to kind of set the scene for us. We get the when. It says, now on the first day of the week. Jesus was killed on Friday, and then he rested from his labors on the Sabbath, the last day, which is how things were designed to work, God's pattern that he told us to then emulate. And now it is the new week, a first day of a first week of a new age. Now it is time for new things to happen. Now, an awful lot had happened in the old week. That, that last week of, of, of the reign of the serpent. There, there was Jesus' triumphal entry. Then there was Jesus teaching in the temple, his overturning the tables. You got all that stuff that happened leading up to, building up to his arrest on Monday, Thursday, and his sham trial on Good Friday, his being put to death on a cross. And then, of course, we have the day of silence, Holy Saturday, when God himself, God in the flesh, lies dead in a tomb. In dying, Jesus accomplished what God had promised way back there in Genesis 3.15. He had reversed the curse. We see the, the bookends at play here. Thorns and thistles were a, a, the first thing mentioned in the curse. Those are placed on Jesus' head. He's crowned with these emblems of suffering and the results of sin because our sin is placed upon him on his head, over his shoulders, and he bears the weight of them on the cross. Sweat will come in, the sweat of your brow. Jesus in the garden sweats blood because he is so overwhelmed to the point of death by the task ahead of him. We see that it was, it was via a tree that the first Adam sinned and the, cur- the curse came in, and it's on a tree that the second Adam, Jesus, dies and thus reverses 
that curse. The scriptures say Jesus then became a curse because cursed is every man who hangs from a tree. And where mankind had become cut off from God, strangers and aliens, on the cross, Jesus himself on our behalf was alienated from the Father and called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first Adam had believed the lie and fallen away for a simple a taste of forbidden fruit. The second Adam, Jesus, he was truth and is truth itself and endured to the end. And his last words on that cross before he gives his spirit to the Father are, it is finished. It is accomplished. It's done now. And something brand new is just beginning. And we see that when you begin reading the Gospel of John, the beginning of the story of Jesus here. It starts with the same words that Genesis begins with, the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there is immediately it goes to talking about creation, how all things were created through Jesus, and nothing is that was not created by Him. And it talks about lights, let there be light, and all these things that flash us back to the original creation story and that first garden. And the story is all leading here to this location, the empty tomb. The story is all about a new beginning at the end of the day. This is the first day of that new week. That's the when. The where, of course, as we've just said, is a tomb. We pick up right where we left off in Genesis 3 when everything fell apart, in a garden-slash-tomb. We, we see that there is death even in the midst of beautiful life growing and being cultivated by a gardener of some sort. And it's only John who places the death and resurrection of Jesus here in the, the place of a, a garden. In John 19, 41, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. That's where Jesus' body was placed. Is there any more fitting place, any more fitting way to remind us of the curse that came, the pain and suffering and loss as a result of sin, than for the sinless Son of God to be laid there in a tomb, in a garden. And when you hear this, don't think of like how we have gardens today around, like, like Deepdale Gardens Cemetery, where the garden is just ornamental for the graveyard. No, this is a working garden. There's a gardener. This is the where in a garden slash tomb. It also tells us here in verse 1, the atmosphere. While it was still dark. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene leaves her home. You see, she couldn't leave on the Sabbath, but by the Jewish reckoning of days, Sabbath had actually ended at sundown the night before. She waits, until she, she waits as long as she can, I think. And she says, eh, sun's about to come up soon, and leaves. It's dangerous to travel, especially as a woman in that world by herself. We read in the other Gospels, the other Mary was with her, but unless the other Mary had some martial arts training I don't know about, that's probably not a whole lot of help. Here she is, traveling by herself through the darkness, and the darkness is fitting, because it matches exactly what's going on inside of her. Now, Mary Magdalene has lived a hard life. And she had experienced more of the darkness of this world than most people ever will. She had had a difficult life. She had been uh, indwelled by of evil spirits. She had been through the ringer. There are different traditions about what her life had been like. None of them looks like a bed of roses. But when she met Jesus, light and hope entered the picture. 
and suddenly things were new. Suddenly, in the place of that darkness was light, but now everything is dark once again because the light has been violently, cruelly snuffed out. And inside she feels darkness. She is numb. She is despairing. It's over. When Jesus says it is finished, she probably thought, yes, it is finished. Our hope is finished. The chance that we had at something good in this awful world is finished. It's all finished. And not unlike back in Genesis 3, these disciples had been walking with God, not only in the cool of the evening, but all the time, day and night, and now they were hopelessly separated. Death had come in once again and stolen their hope. And just like Genesis begins with darkness... So we see here there is darkness. Remember, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. I'm sure that Mary could read that text and think, yeah, I know exactly what that feels like. Now, there are some details of this first encountering of the tomb that John doesn't give us. I want to read a little snippet from Matthew 28. We read this. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. You see how the curse continues now to be reversed and rolled back at the empty tomb. In Genesis 3, in the garden, they were barred from entering, from approaching the tree of life by a flaming sword that turned every which way. It's a difficult thing even to try and picture. Here, the barrier has been removed. The stone rolled back opening up the way of access. At the fall, the angel was placed there to keep people out. Here, the angel invites them in. Have a look. He's not here. He is risen, just as he said. And he doesn't send her out, banishing her from his presence, but rather on behalf of Jesus himself, this angel sends her to bring more people in. Go and tell all of these brothers of Jesus to come and see. Tell them what you've seen. This is something that is repeated by Jesus himself in a moment, reversing the curse. So she goes and she tells them, and of course we have this great story of Peter and John running And John gets there first, but Peter enters the tomb first. And you know it's John writing this down, so he's like, I have to make sure everyone knows that I got there first, even though he walked in first. I'm more reverent and quicker on my feet. But as they go in, we read in John 20, verse 8, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. So they see the empty tomb. After Mary says, they've taken the Lord, he's not there. And they went in and they saw and believed. But what did they believe? I happen to agree with Augustine and think that they didn't believe Jesus had been raised from the dead. They believed the story Mary Mary told them. Oh, okay, even though she's an unreliable woman, that'd be their thinking in the first century, not mine. We believe her because we've seen now with our own two eyes. We got and all of these guys could be called doubting fill-in-the-blank. Poor Thomas is the only guy who gets that adjective. But once they saw, oh, now we believe. And I think, I, I think I'm right because we read in the very next verse, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They didn't understand 
yet. They just believed that he was no longer there. And even Mary, who had seen the angel already, struggled to overcome her unbelief. She doesn't rush in and say, no, no, he's risen. I know that he's risen. She stays outside the tomb weeping. Even after these real sensitive guys just walk away, go back home and and leave her there weeping. And there she stays. Why? Well, I think perhaps part of it is that she had let herself hope after a long time with no hope. And then she'd been disappointed. She'd been let down and, and she's not going to let herself get hurt that way very easily. But read what happens next. Then the disciples went back to their home. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. See, this is the moment that should have been the cinematic, swelling music, slow-mo Sound of the heartbeat comes in louder and louder. She falls to her knees and then Jesus' face slowly comes into focus. And it's beautiful and amazing, but she's not ready for it yet. She still thinks he's dead. She supposes he's the gardener. And she ruins the moment by saying through tears, you there, gardener, do you know where they've put Jesus' body? If you do, you've got to tell me and I will go and get him. How did she not know is the question. This is the man who had cast seven demons out of her. This is the, the Savior that she had, she had spent almost every waking moment with for years. He had changed her life forever. She'd been by his side. But the problem is, in this moment, she's still living in the darkness of Genesis 3. Outside. Isolated. Alienated. Mary had come that morning not to see if he had risen, but to embalm his body. That's why she had with her what she had with her. Not not embalming the process that we think of now, but actual literal balms and oils, perfumes and spices uh, for his body, aloe and myrrh and other sweet-smelling substances. She expected to find him dead, and her expectation is hard to be dislodged. And so we have those words in verse 15, supposing him to be the gardener. But I think what we have there is not a silly mistake, is not just a a reprehensible lack of faith or something or whatever people have made of it over the years. It seems to me we have here one of those accidental prophecies. Someone who lands on the truth, but by the wrong means. Remember when Caiaphas said, when he had gathered the council, and they were talking about what to do about this Jesus problem, it is better for one man to die than for all the people to perish. And we read that he prophesied when he said that. Because he was high priest that year. So even though he hated Jesus, he said something true in that moment. Well, Mary loves Jesus. And she says something very true in this moment. Jesus is the gardener. Remember, he's the one who had planted and cultivated the first garden in Genesis chapter 2. And now here he is to restore what was lost there. 
It's fitting. The first Adam was a gardener. The second Adam is a gardener. Jesus hints at this throughout all of his teaching, by the way. It's agricultural through and through. You can say, well, yes, and that's the world that he's speaking to. And that's true. But in the parable of the soils, we read about how the hearts are tilled and turned. The soil of the hearts by the Spirit, God at work in us, Christ at work in us. Jesus speaks of pruning branches, of vines and vineyards, of fruit trees. In Luke 13, he tells a parable where he is the gardener toiling to bringing an ailing plant back to life. A tree that hasn't bore fruit for a while. And he says, well, we're going to, we're going to give it a special treatment for another year and dig a trench around it. And we're, going to, we're going to put in fertilizer and do all of these things. Jesus cultivates new life in us. He indeed is the gardener. She's hit the nail on the head. Mary had experienced firsthand the way Jesus dealt so very tenderly with broken people. How he is the embodiment, the fulfillment of that prophecy about a bruised reed he will not break. Think about that, a a reed so very thin, bruised, is probably turned a little bit. He won't break it off. He will tenderly, lovingly, carefully bring it back to life and health. This time of year, my, my wife gets this look in her eye. Looking at our yard, all the things she's going to plant and do, and all the she loves gardening. It doesn't do anything for me, so I'm glad that she loves it. She goes out sometimes in the morning, and she's in the dirt. She's doing all these things. She comes back in, and over time, she's going to have dirt under the fingernails. She's going to have she's going to have some form of farmer's tan, despite her best efforts. Because she's getting in there in the dirt and she is taking care of these plants. She's planting, she's weeding, she's pruning, she's watering, she's fertilizing. And you know, our Lord, he gets down into the dirt with us. Good Friday is proof of that. And Easter morning is proof that he accomplishes what he sets out to do. The same Lord who formed man from the earth now cultivates and prunes and waters and cares for us. And sometimes we don't understand what it's, what's going on. There have been a couple of times where some of my favorite flowers, you say, I don't like to do this stuff, but I like to look at the flowers. I like to smell them. That's not really fair, I guess, but oh well. Um, there's been a couple of times where like, some of the, my favorite things, I'll be like, what'd you do? You like, cut those all the way down. They're, it's gone. And she said, no, you have to do that every however many years, and then they grow back even more beautiful. You have to do this. You have to cut it back. You have to print it. Sometimes God is at work doing that, and sometimes he is doing something that we... I mean, when you read that Luke 13 parable, it's, it's really strange. It involves this old practice... Uh, You read about it in this old agricultural book, I'm sure you all have on your shelf at home, called De Rustica, and it's about how if a a tree won't bear fruit, you dig a a trench around it, you put uh, fertilizer in it, you water it, and then you, like, threaten to chop it down and run at it with an axe, and that's supposed to, like, scare the tree straight or something, and it starts forming fruit for you. We don't know what he's doing much of the time, but we know that he is a loving gardener, a bruised reed he will not break. He will carefully, lovingly tend to us. He takes the bad stuff that happened. You ever hear that phrase, scubula happens? That's the Koine Greek version of it. Stuff happens. He takes that stuff that we say, God, we don't want any part of that. Why would you let that into my life? And he says, listen, that comes into your life because you're in a sinful world, but I will use that to fertilize you and cause you to grow all the more. He takes our trials and our temptations and all that we face and he refines us. He is at work, the loving gardener. No wonder she looked at him and supposed that he was the gardener. Now the Bible ends with a return to that perfect 
shalom-filled garden, free of sin and death and suffering and hate and injustice. Back again now is the tree of life and the river of life going through the midst of it, all because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, because of Easter morning. So yes, he is the gardener. And notice, she does finally recognize who he is when he says her name. She says, oh, if, if you're the gardener, yeah, tell me where you put him and I'll go get him. And he waits for her to kind of get done talking and then says, Mary. And that's when she recognizes that he is her Lord. That he is the one who had saved her from darkness and death and hopelessness. And we read in verses 16 and 17, she turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So many people have tried to figure out what that means. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended. I think it's just a joke. I think Jesus has got a, in mind a picture of him starting to ascend, and she's just bringing it. Hold on, we've got stuff to do, Mary. Go and get my brothers. Tell them what you saw. My brothers and your brothers, my God and your God, together, we have now a new chapter, a new age, and this is the first day of it. Adam and Eve, who had been content and happy living in the garden, leave broken and cursed, weeping in regret, banished and alienated from God and even from each other. They had shrunk back and hidden when God called them by name. They had pulled all the further away, knowing we can't stand before him. We are now guilty. And as they were driven from paradise, they knew everything had changed and it wouldn't be the same for them from there on out. But now here in this new garden, on this first day of a new age, Mary starts out on the outside, just like them, weeping. She starts out there, feeling isolated, alone. And then here's the words from Jesus' lips, Woman, why are you crying? And her Lord himself calling her by name. And her first response was not, to shrink back and run away and leave and say, oh, no, no, you can't, you can't. She said, Rabboni, teacher, and clung to him. Because now she, like Adam and Eve, knows that uh, everything is different. Things have changed. It will never be the same. But this time, it's in the direction of the better. And like Adam and Eve in, in, in uh, Genesis 3, the 11 are now hiding up in the upper room in, in a locked room behind locked doors. And so Jesus instructs her, Mary, go tell them what you've seen. Tell them I'm alive. Tell them I've brought life where there was death. I've brought, I've brought light where there was darkness. Where Adam gave in to temptation and brought a curse. I have led a sinless life, died a sinner's death, paid your debt, and have risen again to present you spotless before your God. I have reversed the curse. Behold, I make all things new. In the book of Genesis, the garden became a tomb. But in Christ here, the tomb becomes a garden because a tomb without a body in it becomes simply a beautiful monument to Christ's love and God's power. Indeed, he has reversed the curse. G.K. Chesterton, the, the king of the quote, he said one of my favorite things about Easter he described it this way, On the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized this new wonder. The world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation. 
with a new heaven and a new earth. And in a semblance of a gardener, God walked again in the garden, not in the cool of the evening, but at dawn. Christ undid the separation and alienation. He brought light and life and overcame the lie of the enemy. And we see even the reversing of that deception here. In the first garden, the serpent deceived the woman, who then very easily got the man to go along with her. Here, that deception is reversed as well. Because he goes to this woman first. Jesus goes to this woman who had been such a close and faithful follower all of his ministry, who loved much because she had been forgiven much. And he first tells her this good news, and then he tells her to go and take this good news to his brothers. He trusts her to be the first gospel preacher the church has known. She becomes the conduit now, not of lies, but of truth. And not just any truth, but the truth which sets us free. Jesus is that truth which sets us free himself. In Psalm 24, we read, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the kind of standard to which people know that the God of the universe calls them, and that is why we are continually shrinking back like Adam and Eve, hiding from God. And maybe you're hiding from him today. You know, you can hide from God in plain sight. You can hide from God in church. In fact, that's one of the smartest places to do it. But we, we can hide behind the veneer of our own righteous respectability that we've concocted. We can, we can hide behind a lot of good works and volunteer hours we can hide behind whatever it is that God has put in our lives that we want to hold on to and find some kind of footing in. But I have good news for you today from this second garden. You don't need to hide anymore. You don't need to play the pharisaical game of presenting yourself as the one who can ascend the hill of the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart. We, we don't have to pretend we've got everything together and worked out and we're, we're just perfect to the core I remember when I used to sin. We don't need to do that. We don't need to hide. We, we, we don't have to pretend we have that knowledge of good and evil that we've, we've somehow just absorbed, like they saw in the, in the temptation in the Garden of Eden. It's the spiritual version of those Instagram filters that are supposed to make people look younger, but just like stretch their face and change the shape of their head and make their eyes huge and they look like some CGI monstrosity. We don't need to hide like that any longer. Jesus has already ascended that hill for us, and it's a good thing because he is the only one who could do it. He is the only one who could stand in the holy place. But now that he has done it, he calls us to come and do it as well, to follow him into the presence of God. He's opened the way of access that was closed by our sin. He rolled the stone away. He has now invited us right into the presence of God where we can admit we're a mess. And you know what? That's okay because gardeners aren't worried about getting their hands dirty. And when we hear him call our name, we have no choice but to cling to him and to say, Rabboni, Lord, teacher, master, make me new. Make me new. Wash me clean 
help me to grow, plant me, tend me, cultivate, do what you do. I am yours. Save me. Perhaps you hear him calling your name today. If that is the case, this is a rare occurrence here at Judson Baptist Church. But I'd ask you, well, well, we listen to a song here in a moment to come up here and I'll pray with you and the elders will come and pray with you. We don't want anyone to leave here hiding from God, shrinking back from the presence of God, still in the darkness of Genesis 3 in that old garden when there is a new garden where victory was won on your behalf. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask Kevin to come up here and sing us a song. And we're going to be blessed by that. And then I will send you out into the mission field that is the world to go and do what Mary was told to do. Bring the good news of a risen Christ, that light out into the darkness. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the good news of Easter. We thank you that we are not stuck outside of that old garden looking in, in the darkness, isolated, broken. But Lord, we have been welcomed in by the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, an empty tomb where the stone has been rolled away and the angels say, come on in and have a look. He is not here. He is risen. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you have done for us. Chief amongst those things, sending your son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins and rise again for our justification. We are overwhelmed by your love and your mercy. Lord, we pray that we would then become those who are loving and merciful and full of grace. Lord, that we would, like Mary, leave your presence on a mission to bring people back. In your holy name we pray. Amen.